This is Guns and Butter. Something happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there. One of my greatest sources of information are people who are formally and currently with the U.S. intelligence community, something I was once with myself. And I can tell you that they're firmly convinced, many of them, not all of them, some of them are still in that transition process. Many are firmly convinced that the purging of all the various intelligence agencies of naysayers, people that weren't going along to get along, was conducted because the Bush administration had to eliminate those who could potentially testify to the fact that what 9-11 really was, was a well coordinated and compartmentalized operation to bring about a fascist coup in the United States. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, investigative journalist Wayne Madsen and attorney and author William Pepper from presentations delivered as part of the 9-11-2006 fifth anniversary in New York City. We begin with Wayne Madsen speaking on what he calls the Bush Crime Syndicate. Wayne Madsen is a Washington, D.C.-based investigative journalist, author, and syndicated columnist whose articles have appeared in The Village Voice, Covert Action Quarterly, In These Times, The Intelligence Newsletter, and many other publications. Wayne Madsen. I spoke... um at Riverside Church on the second anniversary of 9-11. And here we are at the fifth anniversary. We're still asking the same questions and more, but I have a feeling that soon, with political changes coming in Washington, we're finally going to get some answers. And it's none too soon. We've heard a lot about culpability of people involved in the cover-up of what actually occurred on that day back in September 2001. One group that's an unnamed group of co-conspirators are my fellow journalists in Washington, D.C. They long ago traded their journalistic ethics for access to this White House. And save for our matron saint, Helen Thomas, there's very few of us in Washington that are willing to pay the price for conducting independent journalism. Somebody asked me uh, the other day what my next book's going to be, and I said, well, probably I'll title it, How to Overthrow a Fascist Regime on $15 a Day. (laughs) But I've grown used to eating canned tuna fish. As a matter of fact, I get more than my recommended daily allowance of mercury. No discussion about the criminals that were behind 9-11 is complete without looking into the history of the Bush family, or as I call it, the Bush Crime Syndicate. 
I hate to be plugging another book here, but my last book, latest book, Jaded Tasks, Brass Plates, Black Ops, and Big Oil, The Blood Politics of George Bush and Company, was an effort to show three generations of this family what they've done to this country and how this family and their cronies could certainly be involved in the types of cover-ups and criminal activities we've heard about this afternoon. Let's go back to the grandfather of W, Prescott Bush, Wall Street securities dealer, banker for Brown Brothers, Nazi financier. What you may not have heard is what, what occurred in 1933, right after the inauguration of one of our greatest presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the Democratic Party should start getting back in line with his policies before it's too late for them. <laughs> FDR, FDR, a native of this great state of New York, was almost overthrown in a coup d'etat launched by people associated with Wall Street bankers, the DuPonts, Averill Harriman, and Prescott Bush. They were going to use 100,000 veterans to march on Washington, take over the Capitol, declare Franklin Roosevelt medically unfit to continue to serve in the office as president, and then they were going to set up something called the Department of General Affairs that would conduct all the security and political operations on behalf of the disabled President Roosevelt. The Department of General Affairs looks an awful lot like the Department of Homeland Security. And where did that term come from? When I, when I was uh, commissioned as a naval officer in 1975, I took an oath to the Constitution of the United States of America, not a homeland. Prescott Bush, Prescott Bush financed a homeland. It was called Nazi Germany. Okay, after the war, young George H.W. Bush, with a, with a ton of money, moves to Texas and starts a company called Zapata. Well, it's not long before H.W. Bush is involved with the Central Intelligence Agency. And as we know from the Watergate tapes, Nixon himself referred to the assassination of President Kennedy in 1963 as the Cuba thing. The Cuba thing involved George H.W. Bush, who, by the way, is one of the few people in the United States of America who does not, who does not remember where he was on November 22, 1963. I'll tell you where he was. He was in Dallas. President Nixon, after the outreach to China, makes George H.W. Bush the first U.S. envoy to Beijing. Well, it's not long before old George H.W. Bush is cutting all kinds of business deals with people who would eventually become the board of directors for what we now know is China Incorporated. You see their showrooms all throughout the United States. They're called Walmart. But... Nixon got in trouble, as we know, 
Watergate break-in. And by the way, if, if we had this kind of Washington press corps that we have today in 1972, we would have had two terms of Richard Nixon, followed by two terms of President Spiro Agnew, and probably an earlier term for George W. Bush. Nixon had to send, uh, fix the problems at the Republican National Committee. Oh, he fixed them. He sent George H.W. Bush over there to be the chairman. So Mr. Cover-Up continued the cover-up. 1980, we find George H.W. Bush in Paris negotiating with the captors of U.S. hostages in Iran to make sure that they were not going to be released prior to the election, thus depriving Jimmy Carter the re-election of the presidency of the United States. George H.W. Bush consorting with enemies of the United States. Not the first time, certainly not the last time. In 1981, shortly after Ronald Reagan is inaugurated, he's leaving the Washington Hilton Hotel when John Hinckley fires shots at President Reagan. That night, John Hinckley's brother Scott was due to have dinner with Neil Bush, the son of the Vice President of the United States, George H.W. Bush. No questions were asked except by very few Washington journalists. At the same time, a, uh, Ronald Reagan, who of course was given a cold blood transfusion at GW Hospital, many doctors say that actually helped bring up about his Alzheimer's disease, but that, that was pretty good for George H.W. Bush because he ran a covert intelligence activity in the basement of the White House with Oliver North to violate the law to trade weapons to Iran for the release of hostages and using the proceeds to illegally fund the Contras in Nicaragua. 1989, George H.W. Bush is president. He invades Panama on very flimsy, for very flimsy reasons, really to get rid of one of the co-conspirators in the Iran-Contra affair, Manuel Noriega, who is now a guest of the Club Fed. George H.W. Bush is also involved in selling WMDs to Saddam Hussein at this, during this period of time. In 1992, lame duck George H.W. Bush engages U.S. troops in Somalia, leaving that mess in the hands of President Clinton. Not the only mess. I was recently informed by an FBI employee who was a, an Arab Arabic translator who looked at the documents from the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and he said that many of the documents were never translated from Arabic into English, never presented to the grand jury or the actual juries that heard the cases against the perpetrators because they contained information about the involvement of Osama bin Laden in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing from his base of operations in Sudan. Now, I received a French intelligence document that states unequivocally, until 1995, Osama bin Laden was under the operational control of the CIA and Britain's MI6, which means Osama bin Laden, according to evidence, that was never presented by the two major prosecutors, Michael Chertoff and Patrick Fitzgerald, 
was never introduced as evidence because it was a smoking gun to show that in 1993, the perpetrators of that bombing of the World Trade Center were under the operational control of the Central Intelligence Agency. The perfidy of the, of the Bush uh, crime syndicate doesn't stop there. During the Clinton administration, the Bush crime syndicate was negotiating with the Taliban of Afghanistan for rights to build the Central Asian gas pipeline from Turkmenistan through Afghanistan to Pakistan. Who was involved in some of these negotiations? The Carlyle Group. It's the slush fund that replaced BCCI for the Bush crime syndicate. The other slush fund they had was temporary. That was called Enron. When they funded the 2000 election, which was stolen by Bush, they were able to wipe their hands of Enron and poor old Kenny Boy Lay. Well, one of my greatest sources of information are people who are formerly and currently with the U.S. intelligence community, something I was once with myself. And I can tell you that um, they're firmly convinced, many of them, not all of them, some of them are still in that transition process. Many are firmly convinced that the purging of all the various intelligence agencies of naysayers, people that weren't going along to get along, was conducted because the Bush administration had to eliminate those who could potentially testify to the fact that what 9-11 really was, was a well coordinated and compartmentalized operation to bring about a fascist coup in the United States. Now these are people that have anywhere from 12 to 25 years experience with the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Drug Enforcement Administration, and other agencies. And this is coming from people who have seen these things from the inside. As one, th one thing I'll tell you from one person I talked to, who was actually on duty at what's called the National Security Operations Center at the National Security Agency, NSA, on 9-11, was in what, an area called the Tactical Communications Area, and distinctly heard on the speakers two pilots communicating over Pennsylvania, stating, we are now engaging the target. The target was United Flight 93. Well, so where does that bring us? 9-11. People say, are you saying that the President of the United States could have sanctioned the deaths of 3,000 innocent people on 9-11? Here's the record. As I say, as I've, I've, I've told people, the only difference between George W. Bush and serial killer Ted Bundy is Ted Bundy got better grades in college. <laughs> And then we have the Iraq War based on a series of lies. We know that from the Senate Intelligence Committee. 
It was based on incorrect, false information being fed to this White House by con men like Ahmad Chalabi, drunkards like Curveball, and other insidious people, including some of the major architects of this failed policy, those who signed the project for the new American century, and you know their names. What should happen to these people, the Bushes? Well, after, after, the release, after the release from prison, if they ever are, they should be barred from ever holding public office in this country ever again. Nor should they ever be allowed to serve on any corporate board or board for a nonprofit entity. We need to start we need to start holding these people accountable because we haven't in the past. This uh, November election is going to be very, very significant, probably more so than the last two that were stolen. John, John Conyers, as chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, I have faith, will begin the process of impeachment hearings. And that's, and that's very significant because with, with that power, he has the power to subpoena witnesses whether they want to appear or not. If they don't want to appear, federal marshals will end up at their offices or at their homes and physically take them down to the Congress to testify. If they perjure themselves, that's a felony and they'll go to jail. So it's, this election, of course, is very significant. And we need to, and we need to also look in the at the future of having a truth commission, not a truth and reconciliation commission. There's no reconciling with these people. But that truth commission should have the power to subpoena and, if need be, recommend indictments to the Justice Department. As I've said often, you know, how do you sum up the Bushes? And all I can say is, and I can say this here in this area, the Bushes make the Sopranos look like Ozzie and Harriet Nelson. Thank you very much. You've been listening to investigative journalist Wayne Madsen. Wayne Madsen is the author of several important books, including Genocide and Covert Operations in Africa, 1993 to 1999, Jaded Tasks, Big Oil, Black Ops, and Brass Plates, and co-author of America's Nightmare, The Presidency of George Bush II. Visit his website at www. Dot WayneMadsenReport.com. That's W A Y N E M A D S E N R E P O R T.com. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. We continue with the 9 11 2006 fifth anniversary in New York with a presentation by attorney and author William Pepper. William Pepper is an international lawyer and was the attorney for James Earl Ray, convicted killer of Dr. Martin Luther King, 
on appeal. Pepper is author of two books on Dr. King's assassination, Orders to Kill, The Truth Behind the Murder of Martin Luther King, and An Act of State, The Execution of Martin Luther King. William Pepper. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's good to be here with you again. I bring you greetings from um, Ed Asner, who is recovering a, a double hip replacement, and through Ed Asner, through many of your friends in the entertainment industry who wish you well with your work. Your work is well received. You have many friends out in, in that industry and certainly in that part of the country, and Ed wanted me to uh, convey their, uh, their best wishes and good thoughts to you and all of you. I also bring you greetings from Nicolas Maduro, who is the new foreign minister of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. <laughs> Nicolas, as some of you know, met with a couple of your um, associates in Caracas. He has one of the largest 9-11 uh, libraries in the world, and, <laughs> and it's become a very um, a major interest of his. When I um, saw him in London at a, a luncheon for, for the president that was given by uh, Ken Livingston, he pulled me aside and said, uh, what do you think about all of this 9-11 uh, stuff? He said, what do you think is, uh, is going on there? And I said, Nicholas, you have to keep uh, due diligence and open mind and know that there are uh, friends of this republic working very hard to get the truth out about 9-11. So I think you'll be hearing more and more from Nicholas Maduro over the years on this issue uh, because he... Uh, has a good deal of interest in it, and, uh, and certainly he, as uh, well as I, to the extent possible, will let the, uh, uh, the president um, know about it. As you know, Hugo Chavez Frias is not one of the favorite um, pieces of work in this government, and uh, he is about, as is Venezuela in my view, to become a member of the Security Council of the United Nations against the objections of the United States. And I suggest that defeat for the United States will be one of the most ignominious defeats that this country has ever suffered before the General Assembly of the United Nations. Now, I leave a box here for you, and this is not the main purpose of my, my the scope of my talk this afternoon, but that, in that box there are about 200 sets of a document. Um, Ed Asner and my name is on the document. It consists of uh, four articles of impeachment that I have drafted uh, against uh, President George Bush. I heard uh, Mr. Madsen speak earlier about impeachment and the possibilities of impeachment. And those of you who are so inclined, I suggest you take these four articles, which, which sum up really the crimes, the high crimes, and misdemeanors of this president, take them who are so inclined, take them to your local Congress people who are running for office in November, perhaps make this a condition of your support for them or your neighbors or your community support for them that they commit now before November that they will support a bill of impeachment against this president. There is a progressive caucus, 
and they need all the support they can get if the Democratic Party happens to get control of the Congress in November then it is very likely that this bill will be introduced and it will go forward. Now, the important thing to understand about impeachment is that once it starts, it has a life of its own. The media have to cover it, and as the evidence unfolds, evidence about everything, not just 9-11, but, but the, the entire surveillance operations, the secret prisons, the violations of the Treaty of Convention on Torture. It all starts to come out. And when the American people hear for the first time what this government has been doing, because the mainstream media has never told them what it's been doing, it should be all over for this president. Some of you will remember the impeachment proceedings against Richard Nixon back in, 19, in the 1970s, in 1970s. So you'll remember what happened then as it unfolded. Even his own party had to turn against him, and of course, he was given no, no sway at all. He had to ultimately resign and then, be, and then be pardoned. So impeachment is certainly a course of action. It is certainly a, a, a serious possibility. And Nixon's crimes, of course, are legendary. It is 30, 33 years ago tomorrow that Salvador Allende went for the last time to Moneda Palace and said, I will die here rather than let this fascist government come from the outside and take control of Chile. And as you know, on the 11th of September 1973, Salvador Allende died in the palace, fighting Augusto Pinochet and the American lackeys who took over. In his last broadcast, the Chilean people, he said, make no mistake about it. It is all about the defense of our natural resources. That is what this is all about. Now, this is not a single issue. People have said, what are you doing getting involved in a single issue like 9-11? This is not a single issue. This issue pervades the entirety of life, culture, politics in this country. This issue is an issue that involves a symptomatic illness, sickness of this nation. We live in the belly of a beast that has ravaged the world and the poor people of the world for the last 60 years. So I come here because my conscience compels me to come here as yours compel you to come here and as yours compel you to work and as this panel continues to do its work, it is a matter of conscience and it is for the salvation of this republic. So I, I celebrate you. I am not involved in the nitty-gritty day-to-day work of this investigation, but I celebrate you, and I celebrate these people for what they are doing. As citizens of a republic, you have to do what you are doing. You have to dissent. You have to work. You have to investigate. You have to clamor. Dear citizens, do not fall silent. Grow in numbers and grow in strength and let your voices eventually be heard. Having said that, 
I don't serve you well unless I caution you. After over 40 years of uh, experience and not a small amount of pain, there are five elephants in this room. And one of those elephants is military intelligence. And they're here. And they're recording for themselves and taking the notes and everything that is going on here, and they will report back. And they're doing their job. And you know, some of those guys, when they get to fairly senior levels, have a conscience. And they, they, strangely enough, that conscience, and I think I heard Mr. Madsen mentioning uh, contacts, often causes them to do things, to make phone calls, at least to tip people off. Seymour Hersh has been the recipient of any number of these kinds of good tips. I was told about the uh, assassination plot against President Chavez on was going to take place on the 11th of April, 2002. What is this about the 11th day of these months? <laughs> the 11th day of April, 2002. And uh, he sent two ministers to, uh, to London to meet with me for the first time. They didn't believe me. The coup, of course, took place. The second time I was given the tip, he did believe me, and the coup did not take place. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the second elephant in this room are provocateurs, disinformation agents. And they will seek to get your trust. They will seek to come inside. They will seek to work with you. And they will seek to have you proclaim the untenable, the undocumented. Yes, the very difficult aspects of your work will be to discern what is true and what isn't true, what can we substantiate and what we can't, because the first times you make a mistake, the mainstream media will destroy your credibility. Make no mistake about that. You must be very, very careful. Now, the third elephant in this room, it's the corporate elephant in this room, is the corporate mainstream media, and they're here as well. Not that they're going to cover anything, or not that they're going to use anyone's names, or not that they're going to give any credit for the work that's being done, but they're here. And they have been well and truly had for many years. Carl Bernstein told us in 78, oh, there are 400 intelligence agencies represented in the mainstream of American media. New York Times had 12. Salzberger gave Dulles, Alan Dulles, 12 in 1959. They've rotated over all the years. The largest publisher in the world is the Central Intelligence Agency, owning publishing houses, magazines, newspapers, all over the world. So make no mistake about it. That's a pretty big elephant that we're up against in terms of information, and they're right here with us today. Now, the good news is that the other two elephants are truth, which underlies everything you're after and about, and which pervades everything that happens here today. Truth, the truth of what really happened in 9-11, what really took place, and what really were the actions of members of government and their outsourced mercenaries who are always present in these operations today. So truth is very important. And the overwhelming support of the people of this planet is here in this room. Remember, 84 nations lost their people in that event, 9-11, in that tragedy. And anywhere one goes in the world today, there is no question 
that the support for what you're doing and for the truth about that event is with you from around the world. Please do not ever, ever underestimate that. You're listening to attorney and author William Pepper from the 9-11-2006 fifth anniversary in New York. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, there's not a lot of time, but it's important that you have this historical context. So I can only, in the time that's allowed, give you a bit of a snapshot. But it's important, I, I apologize to those of you who know all of this history, but many may not. And in order to understand exactly what happened in 9-11, and to put it in the context, it is very important that you understand this. It started a long time ago, didn't it? It started with the invasion of Mexico and the major acquisition of good chunks of southwestern America taken from the Mexican government. Yes, it did. And then it went in 1893 to Hawaii, where the Hawaiian the native Hawaiian monarch was overthrown by 200 Marines serving the interests of some American sugar interests. Then it went to 1898 and the Spanish-American War, where America helped, of course, liberate Cuba, said it would leave and then stayed putting in one dictator after another till the Cuban Revolution of 1959. Then we had the Philippines, where the Americans basically took total control with massive, massive numbers of dead. And then we had World War II. And everyone said, well, that's a good war. We waged that war. Well, was it? Yes. A good war, ultimately? Yes. But what was happening all the time running up to that war in terms of the Nazis? The carriages that took the Jews to the camps were built by General Motors. The calculators that they calculated the deaths in the various camps produced by IBM. John Forster Dulles was the managing partner of Sullivan and Cromwell. They had their largest, one of their largest offices in Berlin. They represented the major multinational corporations who dealt with Nazi Germany. The Bush family in its legacy dealt in banking and finance with the Bush, the old man Bush with the with, with the Nazis. So America's corporate hands are as always dirty with respect to collaboration even with the Nazis. And then after the war, the entire Reinhard Galen organization was brought here and American foreign policy against Eastern Europe was programmed by Hitler's own intelligence operations that we brought uh, to, these, to these shores. Then we have the legacy of Mossadegh, brilliant, revered, secular leader of Iran who was overthrown by the CIA, all having to do with Anglo-American oil. Then there was Arbenz in, in uh, Guatemala, and that had to do with sugar. I knew Arbenz. I came to know Arbenz, one of his personal pilots, who was a CIA mercenary guy. And I said to him, Jack, at one point, don't you guys have any conscience about helping these kinds of tyrants and putting them out. And he said to me, he said, Bill, it's a job. If I can do it for a good guy, I'll do it. But it's a job, and that's what we do. So that's what they did. Oh, so there goes our bends. Honduras, the same thing in 63 with Zamuri and the sugar. Roldos, the objectionable leader of Ecuador in 1981, was hit, had his helicopter shot out of, out of the sky. The same year, Omar Torrios, 
who was totally unfathomable and disliked to the extent that Chavez is today. Torrios was then in Panama. His helicopter somehow got blown out of the sky. And in comes Noriega, who was a favored strongman for quite a period of time. Then, of course, there was Grenada, which was Ronald Reagan's magnificent victory, because, of course, the Cubans had some workers there, some technicians, helping to build a medical school. And that was, you couldn't do that. So yeah, they invaded Grenada. They didn't like that government. And more recently, of course, in Haiti. Ah, Haiti. They've blatantly gone, kidnapped the president of Haiti, and flown him off to exile in Africa. Jean-Baptiste Aristide is now ensconced in deepest Africa, having been kidnapped by American military forces. So that is a part of the background, but then there is Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is of particular relevance to all of you here, to all of us here. Particular relevance. And I, what the Brits call an old Pakistan hand, I've spent a lot of time there in one way or another. I was um, uh, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto's last lawyer on appeal before Zia took him out and hung him, <laughs> 1978. Not one of the cases I'm particularly proud of. Um, but anyway, they hung him. He was out of the way. Zia was running the country. He put the daughter of Benazir and Begum, the widow in prison, then house arrest. And through one means of leverage or another, usually threatening massive public opinion and public relations, mostly from Europe, nothing from here, um, we got Benazir out and Begum out, brought them to London. And last time I became very friendly with Benazir, the last time I saw her in the Barbican in London, she said, Bill, I'm going back to Pakistan. I said, what are you, crazy? He's only going to put you in jail again. She said, oh, that's my father's destiny. I'm going back. She gave me this, this, all this rubbish, right? So I shook my head and you know, off she went. Within a short period of time, Zia's uh, helicopter blew up. And guess who was prime minister? Benazir Bhutto, who then proceeded to loot the country with Asif Zadari, her new, her new husband. All right, so Zia's away. Benazir is now prime minister. Over the years, there's no question in terms of what happened to the Soviets in Afghanistan that Pakistani intelligence, ISI, worked very closely with the CIA and effectively created the Taliban. They created the Taliban. The Taliban were used to get rid of the Soviets. And they thought they could deal with these guys. Okay, so they bring them to Houston. And many of you may know the story. They came to Houston to discuss a pipeline, would you believe? That's what you do in Houston. So they discuss this pipeline. And were the Yanks surprised when the Taliban would not agree to the terms and conditions they wanted? And they said to them in this famous quote, we can carpet your country with bombs. Well, we can carpet your country with gold. And this is in June of 2001. So it's all building already. The Taliban, of course, go back, and the rest is history. Their country was carpeted with bombs. So ISI has this close, ongoing working relationship with the CIA. Now I ask you, I don't know a great deal about a lot of the nitty-gritty individual facts that a lot of people have in this case, but I do know about this one. Why has Mahmoud Ahmed, who was the head of Pakistani intelligence, ISI, at the time 
of September 11th, in fact, here in Washington for seven, seven days during that time, why, when he instructed Sheikh Obaid to send the last $100,000 to the alleged hijacker, Mohammed Atta, why? Why? And this is not questioned by anyone. The FBI has admitted that they know this. It's well documented and well established. Why has this man not been uh, uh, indicted and extradited to the United States to stand trial? And worse than that, <laughs> and worse than that, why has there been no coverage of any of this? Why has the 9-11 Commission never even dealt with this? Why, has, why hasn't Tim Russert and uh, Anderson Cooper and these, these characters, why have they not once raised this question? Well, that's a rhetorical question, isn't it? I mean, I think, <laughs> I, I, I think we know. This um, money rules this empire. It's the same oligarchic forces that killed Caesar, killed the Gracchi brothers, the same oligarchic forces that have tried to unseat Chavez and have hated Castro for so long, the same types of forces here have caused $400 billion to be spent in Iraq, have caused tax advantages for the wealthy, have cut back on social programs so that the tax benefits of the wealthy can be, uh, can be made up, and on and on it goes. I last time mentioned the story of a man who used to brief Lyndon Johnson on the Vietnam War, and I left Vietnam out of that litany. And he would come back every week, every two weeks, and he'd talk to Johnson, and he'd say, now, President, this is the wrong war. You must, we must get out of this war. We're losing, we're losing lives. We're spending treasure. This is the wrong war. This is a nationalist war. This is not a communist domino event that's taking place. This is a nationalist war. Johnson, listen, went on week after week. Finally, one day, Johnson pounded the table. And he said, John, I can't get out of this war because my friends are making too much money. Now that tells, speaks volumes. And the, man, the woman who told me this was the daughter of the, of the colonel who was Johnson's briefer. She said he came home, her father came home that afternoon, told his wife to pack their bags. They were taking, an he was going to have himself assigned to Canada and he was going to sit this out. No longer would he participate in these deaths. But that revelation does say it all. It continues to this day. It is all about money. This must end. The Institute for Policy Studies has done a, a, a massive study on excessive executive excessive incomes. Recently it's just come out. He said the top 15 U.S. oil CEOs were paid an average of 32.7 million, average, 32.7 million in 2005, in one year. William Grehe of Valero got 95.2 million. Ray Irani of Occidental Petroleum, 84 million. Lee Raymond, outgoing CEO of Exxon Mobil, 69.7 Million. These are annual pay packets that people are getting in a country where a Congress is refusing to raise the minimum wage. This is a disgrace. 
You remember old man Welch confronting Joe McCarthy? You may not, if you haven't have been, been go back that far or seen good night and good luck. Confronting McCarthy, and he said, at long last, Senator, have you no shame? At long last, oligarchs in America, have you no shame? Is there no limit to this greed? Is there no limit to this greed? I think that's the answer. You're listening to attorney and author William Pepper from the 9-11-2006 fifth anniversary in New York. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. All right, so what to, what to do? You know, what to do? What to do about all this? We now have an analysis of this problem. What do we do about this? I'm here to tell you what I think should be done, and it, it may not be of interest to many of you. I think it's, the time for words are over. I think the time for speaking truth to power is over. Power doesn't listen when you speak to it. You know, during the Spanish-American War, our forebears had the best songs and the best speeches. During the Vietnam War, we had the best songs and the best speeches and the most righteous people. And we fought a losing battle. I will tell you what I think has to be done. Just look south of the border and you'll get a glimpse of what AMLO is doing in Mexico City. When they control the electoral machinery as they did in Peru, as they did in Florida, as they did in Ohio, apparently, and as they certainly have done in, in Mexico, why they limit the machines in the poor areas, and they cause people to wait, and they threaten them, and they take them off the rolls, and they find reasons not to allow them to vote, and then they stuff the ballot. They go the whole range of things that, that causes elections to be lost. When they do that, and one knows that. And one says, as, uh, as Obrador said, let's just give us a recount. <laughs> give us a recount. And then we'll agree with you, but we have to be a part of that recount. And they say, no, 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 no recount is necessary. So AMLO has said, all right, then we are not going to do what the Americans did in Florida. We are not going to do what the Americans did in, in, in Ohio. We are going to come and we are going to stay. In 1967, 39 years ago, Martin King said, Bill, the only way to really move this government is not by marching, and it's not by talking, and it's not by appealing to their conscience. The only way to move this government is to confront them with the other means of power. Two roads to power, one money, they have that. Two numbers, we should have that. So, what Martin proposed in 1967 and was unable to carry out in 68 because they killed him is what I'm going to suggest that this growing organization consider doing now. My suggestion is that you build a camp. That we go to Washington, D.C. and we build a camp. And we build this camp in the shadow of the Washington Memorial and we stay there. And we go every day 
to the congressmen and the senators of the various districts who represent us with a very simple, very simple demand. That demand, that goal unifies this whole group because everybody here I know wants that, that goal, that demand. That demand is give us a new independent investigation of 9-11. One that has subpoena power, one that includes family members of victims of 9-11. And you go every day, and you darken their door every day. And you go every other day, and you keep going, and all the time you're there. You see, if you march, they can count on you going home. But if you go to stay, that's another matter. And when you plan this, and the logistics are very important, do not go and say to the parks authority, we want to come and we want a, a bit of land where we can put some tents and, and we, want, we want some uh, ability to be here uh, for a period of time. We're not quite sure how long, but, but you don't do that. You don't do that. You say to them, we are coming. We are going to be here. We want to work with you in terms of where we're going to stay. So work with us, but make no mistake about it. We are coming in our thousands. And all of you and all of the workers and all of these people are important, but amongst that group, for the security and safety of that group, must be people who are known internationally, who must come from various countries of the world. Entertainers must come. People have got to give up portions of their time and be there. That is the security for everyone else if you have those kinds of figures. And by the way, it's time that all of our dear old friends who write so well, who analyze so well, it's time they came to the streets because this republic is dying. <laughs> John Milton told us, you know, we all have one foot in the grave, and we do. But what this is about is those who come after. What this is about is what are we leaving those who come after. And that is not a single issue. That is an issue, an affirmation of an issue forever. You know, as a young baseball player in Cuba, one of, two of us came from Colombia into Cuba in 1959 after the, um, after the revolution. And, and uh, Fidel's a baseball fan, a very good pitcher, by the way. And <laughs> as is Chavez, both left-handed, and I was a left-handed pitcher, too, so we have that, have that sort of in common. But there was always a shy guy in, the, in a lot of the meetings, in a lot of the rooms. And he stayed off to the side, and it took a while to get to, get to this guy. You know, eventually, his plea would be heard throughout the world. Jean-Paul Sartre called him the most complete human being of our time. He would shake the earthly foundations of oligarchy wherever he went. And he had this magnificent phrase that he coined, Por los pobres de la tierra, hasta la victoria siempre. For the poor people of the earth, ultimately, Victory, we have to strive for victory for the poor people of the earth. And that was where he always saw things. Ernesto Che Guevara. 
175 years earlier, Mr. Jefferson noted that man is the only predator who preys on his own kind, the rich, he said, upon the poor, and how right he was. But he said, you know, went on to say, we should not expect to be transported from despotism to liberty on a feather bed. I suggest there will be no feather beds in this camp that I'm proposing to you. Indeed, we may ultimately confront Mr. Jefferson's greatest reality, that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. He said, this is its natural manure. So we must see 9-11 as the excuse for the despotism that is involving our world and that of the world. The time has come from the American tree of liberty to be refurbished, to be refreshed. Your precious work and all of this has made a beginning. It's made a start. If it stays with words, if it stays with publications, if it stays with wonderful documentaries of the truth, it too shall all pass away. If you want to change this world, if you want to change this nation, if you want to save this republic that is moving ever closer to empire, then you have to take that kind of action which I suggest here today. Hasta la victoria siempre for the poor people of the earth. listening to international lawyer and author William Pepper speaking at the 9-11-2006 5th anniversary in New York. William Pepper represented the family of Dr. Martin Luther King in a successful wrongful death civil suit against Lloyd Jowers and other unknown co-conspirators. William Pepper can be contacted by email at wpintlawus at AOL.com. That's W-P-I-N-T-L-A-W-U-S at AOL.com. Audio for today's show, courtesy of WBAI news reporter Fred Wynn. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, Call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Words of wisdom that are written on the walls of
Chris Knight Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what's inside yourself For peace, give thanks, live